So our topic this week from Rays of the One Light by Swamiji is the mystery of avatara or divine incarnation. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. The Bhagavad Gita in the fourth chapter states, as we saw last week, O Bharata, whenever virtue declines and vice predominates, I incarnate on earth, taking visible form, I come to destroy evil and to reestablish virtue. What is the mystery of this divine manifestation? Great avatars such as Krishna and Jesus Christ are born as babies, even as we all are. They take human form and they go through normal human experiences as they grow from childhood to adulthood. They eat, they play, they may seem to suffer sickness and disappointment like the rest of us. In what way are they different from other human beings? The important thing to understand is that even as they are like us, so are we also like them. Their realization can be ours too. They come on earth to show us our own divine potential. The difference lies not in the manner of their manifestation on earth, but in the consciousness with which they are born. All things are condensations, so to speak, of the cosmic vibration Om, described by St. John's Gospel as the Word. Most human beings, however, are unconscious of their divine origin. The avatars, on the other hand, come consciously as manifestations of that divine reality. As the gospel says in the first chapter, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to start. It's interesting to try to look at what an avatar is or who an avatar is, but we look from the outside. I'm going to start with Master's beautiful poem, God's Boatman, that looks from his eyes and what the consciousness of an avatar is. They come as the... Bible reading said, the word was made flesh. It isn't a personality that comes, but it's a vibration that comes. And in this case, one of the vibrations is deep, deep compassion. 
I want to ply my boat many times across the gulf after death and return to earth's shores from my home in space. I want to load my boat with all those waiting thirsty ones who have been left behind, that I may carry them to the opalescent pool of iridescent joy. There where my father distributes his all-quenching liquid peace. Oh, I will come back again and again, crossing a million crags of suffering. With bleeding feet I will come, if need be a trillion times. As long as I know that one stray brother is left behind. I want thee, O oh God, that I may give thee to all. I want salvation, that I may give it to all. Free me then, O oh Lord, from the bondage of this body, that I may show others how they too can free themselves. I want thine everlasting happiness, but I want also to share it with others, that all my brothers may find the way to happiness forever and forever in thee. Certainly one of the most beautiful poems ever written. So the avatar is different from a normal human being and different even from the great saints that come. There's a difference of consciousness and I'll talk briefly about that. Swamiji and Master have told us quite clearly what the consciousness or the steps to the consciousness of a completely freed soul is. First of all, there has to, first of all, they come from a past not unlike ours. They were human beings. Before they were human beings, they were animals. Before they were animals, they were plants. Before that, maybe minerals. Master said that he could remember the time that he was a diamond. Now that goes a long way back in the evolution of consciousness. Speaking of evolution, it's not about the evolution of form. Evolution is about the evolution of consciousness that moves ever more toward awareness and self-awareness until it returns to the understanding that it is all awareness. It is everything. And that's the destiny of all of us. It's the destiny of everyone born. It's just that the avatars have led the way. They have already achieved that which we are all going to achieve. And as we heard in this beautiful, beautiful poem, out of complete compassion, they return to this world of pain and suffering in order to help us move out of pain and suffering, move toward our own awareness of who we really are. So an avatar is someone who has gone through that long process and then finally through discipline, through sadhana, through a very, very severe, or I should say sincere, doesn't have to be severe, but it does have to be sincere, spiritual search, has come to the point 
where they're able to still their consciousness sufficiently so that they realize in that still vibration that they're one with God. Be still and know that I am God is the way that this is put in the Bible. And so sadhana is meant to still the restless vibrations and bring us to a point of absolute stillness, even to the point where the breath stops. In this beautiful poem, Master talks about leading one to opalescent pools where thy ever-quenching peace is found. That's a hidden reference. He's called the light at the spiritual eye, the kutasta. He talks about that as the opalescent flame. And so where is he leading us? Is he leading us to some Hawaiian waterfall? I don't think so. <laughs> He's leading us back into our own self until we can find the all-desire-quenching peace of the opalescent pool at the spiritual eye. So the avatar has done that and has gone into the highest state known in the scriptures of India as samadhi, known in the West generally called ecstasy, but gone into that highest state where there is no sense of limitation in the sense of self. We won't lose a sense of self, but that sense of self will expand beyond the way that it manifests in each of us at this point, assuming that we all have egos that are still operating, because the soul, in the form of an ego, or in the state of an ego, one might say, thinks of this body and this personality as the I. I am, and then you would fill in your name, your occupation, your culture, where you're from, but it all has to do with this body and this personality and this one little pinpoint of infinity when in fact the I is infinity itself, the true I. Well, when we go into that state of samadhi, it breaks us open from the limitation of thinking that we are this limited I. And in fact, one of many paths is basically to ask the question over and over, who am I? Until we trace back to the very roots of who am I, which is everything. So a master is one who has achieved that. In fact, Yogananda gave as his definition of master, of a master, one who is able to consciously go into the breathless state. At first we're able to go into that, but only when the life force is withdrawn, deeply withdrawn. And when the life force begins to come back into the body and begins to spread out, then, unfortunate though it seems, we go back into the egoic state. And that first state of samadhi is called sabhikalpa samadhi, or with differentiation. And in fact, Swamiji has said that that state is the most severe test of all. 
because he's explained it this way. We have enough trouble getting out of the ego, getting out of a sense of pride, when we don't have very much going for us. <coughs> Maybe we just have a little better bridge game or a little more money in the bank and it's enough of a challenge to get out of that state. But when we have experienced ourselves as the everything, as all consciousness and seen past and present and future and see that it is all one and then we come back into the form of the ego or into the state of the ego, we have reason to think we're hot stuff. But if we hold on to that thought in the limited form, then it forms a blockage. And it may be that we have achieved that state in past incarnations and then come back into several more incarnations because we still hold on to a sense of ego. And Swamiji has written about this. I, I don't want to go farther down that, that line. Look it up for yourself and study. That's one of the ways out. So we have this first stage of seeing that we're everything. Then we have a higher stage called Nirbhakalpa Samadhi in which we can come back into the physical form, but we don't come back into egoic consciousness. And in that state, we're always in that expanded state of consciousness, but we're able to function through the body and lead what seems to be a normal life. And those great saints that have achieved that degree of consciousness come back to earth in order to help all of us. They come back as the great teachers. But even that is not yet the state of an avatar because that state that I was just talking about is called a jivan mukta or freed while living. And Swamiji has said that every one of us should try to achieve that state of being a jivan mukta. That's a, a high, high goal that he set. But it's the goal that all of us ultimately need to achieve because we will never rest until we do. But having achieved that state of jivan mukta, we still have, we still carry the memory of when we were in a delusive state. So as Swami put it, even having achieved Nirbhakalpa Samadhi, I could remember when I was in the incarnation of a pirate. And as long as I think that I, the ego, was that pirate, I'm not free of that even memory causation. And so a Jivan Mukta has to come back and untie all of the knots of karma. Anandamoy Ma put it in a beautiful way though. She said it's, that state is like a fan that's been turning and the plug has been pulled. There's no more power going into the ego and it just has to wind down a little bit. And in fact, Master said that in that state, the consciousness doesn't really care too much whether it 
is in an incarnated form or not in an incarnated form. And because in that state there's great compassion, as Master talked about, those great saints may hold on to a little bit of karma that causes them to reincarnate simply so that they can help others. And so when we see a really, really great saint, it behooves us not to concentrate on the outer form, on the beauty that they have or the wonderful personality or the whatever it is, but to concentrate rather, think of them as the word made flesh or as compassion made flesh or as joy made flesh or as one of these states of consciousness that comes into a fleshly form but is not limited by that because that's the point that we will all have to achieve. And so the great saints come in and they work out all of the karmic patterns from the past until they're completely free of that. And then they're known in what is known in the Indian scriptures as a siddha, a completely freed soul. Now, Master talked about many, many great saints in the autobiography, but he said that of all those saints, only a handful were siddhas, the saints of our line and just a very few others. And those siddhas come in in order to help, generally speaking, in a larger manner. Generally speaking, they have more of a world mission. But we can't even count on that. Sometimes they come and they have just what seems to be a relatively obscure life. There was apparently a disciple of Ramana Maharshi named Swami Rama or Yogi Rama. And Swamiji met him and spent two or three days with him. Master also met him. And this man was a siddha, but he lived a very obscure life. And Master said, if he had spent one more, one half hour longer with him, he might not have been able to pull himself away from India. Now, I think that was a quaint way of saying that he wasn't all that comfortable outside of the vibration of another siddha. And being in that vibration was extremely fulfilling. But of course, Master had a mission to do. But Swamiji met this Swami Rama, Yogi Rama, and spent two or three days with him. And at one point he said, you have so much to give. Why do you live such an obscure life? He was in a little village with two or three disciples and the villagers knew who he, that he lived there, thought he was a little bit odd, but pointed him out, had no world mission at all. And his simple answer was, God has done what he wanted to through this body. So it, we can't just assume that these great, great souls have a worldwide mission to do. Sometimes they come in relative obscurity. If we look at our own line of masters, 
There's Babaji. We, we don't even have a photo of Babaji. I mean, he's, he's deathless. He's been in Himalayas for many centuries. And there are just little hints about him. He wasn't really very well known, certainly in the West, until Master wrote about him in the autobiography. And in fact, Master said that the most precious memory of this incarnation was when Babaji visited him just before he was coming to the West. One time. And he said that was the most precious point of this incarnation. And then he went on to say, I would not share this publicly because it is so sacred, except that I share it because it might help others actually believe in the story of Babaji if I say that I have seen him with my own eyes. And so that's why he shared that. So that's a very kind of obscure incarnation. His direct disciple, Lahiri Mahashaya, was a little more public, but not very public. You know, we hear the story of Lahiri um, not, not allowing his photograph to be taken. Remember the story where a photographer comes and uh, exposes several plates, because that was the film in those days. And they have the bench, they have the surroundings, that Lahiri is sitting on, but no Lahiri. And so then he begs him, please allow me to um, take a photograph of you, and Lahiri allows one photograph to be taken. Well, we think this is quaint, and we think, oh, well, he probably had some little quirk that he didn't like his picture to be taken. They don't have quirks <laughs> at that level. We have quirks. And we extend those onto them. The reason that Lahiri did not want his picture to be taken was because he said he wanted people to do the sadhana that would free them from delusion. And if they have a picture, they tend to worship the picture and forget the sadhana. It's a little like going to a doctor because you have diabetes and the doctor tells you to get exercise, and so you come home with a picture of the doctor and you worship it, and you don't do the exercise. So Lahiri didn't want people worshiping him, and he was very obscure, so obscure that here's a fun story, interesting story about Lahiri. He had a nephew, and his nephew developed a severe kind of chronic disease, and he went to several doctors, and the doctors told him that it couldn't be cured by medical means, that he had to find a Mahatma, a great soul, and that great soul would cure him of the disease. And so he heard of such a great soul that lived in the north of India, and he was preparing to make the trip there when a friend of his father's heard about it and said, why are you traveling up there? You have a Mahatma in your own family. Now here was a grown nephew who didn't even know that because Lahiri kept a, a kind of a role that he didn't want it to be very outward. He had a particular, this was the way God was playing through him. 
And so you can't assume that an avatar is an avatar because he has a big world mission the way Jesus had or the way that Master had. They, God just plays in the roles in the way that is necessary. Well, so what we have to do, I mean, the real essence of this is not what they're like and what their part of the drama is, but what is our part in the drama? What is the role of the disciple or role of, as it would be called in India, the chela, which I prefer that word. It means a child. Disciple sounds a little more formal and a little more limited because, in fact, one of the roles of the avatar or of a true guru is to bathe us with so much love and wisdom and joy that it transforms us. It isn't just discipline, just kind of the mean old teacher who's going to train us. But having a great guru, a sat guru like this, is an enormous blessing. In fact, in the scriptures it says there is no blessing in all the three worlds that can equal the blessing of having a true guru, a sat guru. And so our role is to attune ourselves to that great, I can't even say consciousness to that vibration of God that comes into the form, into word made flesh. Master said that his particular vibration was threefold, joy and wisdom and love. And so we can think of Master not as just an individual, but as joy, wisdom and love made condensed into a fleshly form. And so our job is to attune ourselves to that vibration, attune ourselves to that great master. Now, why does God come into that human form? Because as human beings, we need to have a model. We need to have someone in human form so that we can aspire to be like them. If God were to manifest in the clouds with a voice that came out and said, I am wisdom, I am light, I am joy, I am love, none of us would feel that we could aspire to become a cloud and speak. But Master comes in a form that we can say, well, he's looks kind of like me. He acts kind of like me. I can try to be like him. And in fact, that's why they do. Our job, our first and most important job, is to open our hearts, meaning open our desires to be in attunement, to be like them, to merge with them. That's why we do the purification ceremony every week. And we begin by saying, the person comes up and says, I seek purification by the grace of God. And the minister responds, the master says, open your heart to me. 
and I will enter and take charge of your life. They cannot guide us until we, of our own free will, ask them to. And that desire for their guidance allows them then, because God has given everyone free will, and they will not intrude on that. But if of our own free will, we deeply ask for their guidance, they will come in and take charge of our life. When Master's first disciple in America, Dr. Lewis, accepted him in that way, Dr. Lewis said, Master rubbed his hands together and said, now I can take charge of your instruction in your, your life. And so they're waiting. That's why they've incarnated. They're waiting, but they are waiting for us to accept and want them. And so that's our first and greatest test is to get to the point where where we're able to do that. And to do that with a very, very high master, like an avatar, is an enormous gift. Even to do that, even to open our hearts to the avatar, is not by any means the first stage. Think of them like the master, master musician who is working only with those violinists who are ready to dedicate themselves to the point where they can play the concert violin. They don't come to teach students how to play Twinkle Twinkle. Other teachers, other lesser teachers do that. And if the student progresses and progresses and progresses, then we get to the point where we have the master teacher because they're going to ask some things of us that we may find difficult to give them, like everything. <laughs> and until we're ready, then we won't attract them. The picture we have of Jesus on the altar, that comes from a larger painting by Hoffman. And it's a painting, he looks, Jesus looks a little, he's turned to the side and eyes slightly down and a little sad looking in that picture. And it's from the story in the Bible and the painting depicts this where a young rich man comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says to him, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then follow after me. And in the painting, the young man, it's too much for him. He's turned away and Jesus is accepting the fact that he's not ready to take up that level of spiritual search. So for all of us, by the time we have come into an incarnation where we are the followers of a great, great master, that is a very, very precious incarnation. We all have a beautiful, not unique, but a beautiful and very precious and sacred opportunity in this life. And that opportunity, if we follow it, if we give everything we have and everything that we are 
into that spiritual search, then we can not just follow the Guru, but we can become like him. We can achieve what Swamiji has told all of us that we should aspire to achieve, the state of freedom from ego. And that is a very, very well-lived life.